Good morning. If you are in Kidmo, you can head on out. If you're our guest, you have a second through fifth grader. Kidmo is, and they are gone. A big group of them today. I'm not sure who's in Kidmo today. Um, if you're a guest and you have a second through fifth grader, they have their own time of study, teaching, small group, um, and some fun stuff that they do. You're welcome to walk back and see where they're headed and then pick them up after the service. Um, we're going to continue today our, our series called Protestant uh, Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming. So last week, if you were here last week, uh, I gave you a ton of history and, and stuff to process. So I'm going to give you a little today, but we're going to be focusing on one person today rather than jumping around to a lot of different folks. But just to recap, what we're trying to do in this series is we're prompted by the timing of, of just this time of, of year and this year. We've been celebrating for 500 years the nailing of the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg by Martin Luther, which sparked a fire that had been kindled for about 100 years that would eventually become known as a Reformation. This year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and so we're spending this month talking about some of the history and why it happened, what happened, what we gleaned from it, and why it's important for us today. Now, I know that for many of you, you come from different backgrounds, and so some of our goals are what some of our goals are not. We have no intention of reliving the Reformation in the sense that we feel that we need to still fight those battles. While certainly some of those battles are raging in some ways, for the most part, this is a very different landscape today. Also, what we don't seek to do is to heap coals on the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church of today is not the Catholic Church of the Reformation. Still, there are some inconsistencies with Scripture, but that's really not our point to try to point out one group of Christians over another as being bad Christians. The truth is, one of the negative things that the Reformation brought was a splintering of the church. Now, that splintering of the church was necessary 500 years ago. Today, we are splintered in so many different ways. That was never Christ's intention. So all of our denominations, typically denominations, are based around certain beliefs or certain theologies or certain nuances in Scripture that they feel that they are set apart from a different group, and they want to fellowship only with those people that believe consistently all of those things. Many denominations today have certain things that you have to sign in order to be a part of that denomination. And you have to say, I hold to all of your beliefs. And as a pastor in one of those denominations at one time, there was, very, there was real question, if you would not sign off on every single nuance of the belief system, then they may not allow you to be a part of their denomination, which is, again, not something that is ever in Scripture, not something Christ ever wanted for His church. As His church, I want us to walk into all of this understanding that we are one body under Christ. We either, if, either we know Christ or we don't. If we do, we are the church. And it doesn't matter what label we slap on that, but it is a terrible offense to the spirit of the nature of the church and what Christ intended when we separate ourselves saying we are the right ones and they are the wrong ones. Throughout Scripture, there has been that challenge, even in the Old Testament before Christ came. The challenge are who are the right ones, and consistently the teaching was this, don't worry about it. You live out what I'm telling you to live out, and God says, I will take care of separating out who needs to be separated out. 
But what we have a tendency to do is not wait on God, but what we want to do is take it on ourselves. And what happened in the leading up to the Reformation, which I, as I shared last week, I believe began in the third century, fourth century AD with Constantine, when Constantine made Christianity kind of the state religion and took Christianity from this quickly growing group of faith that are on the outsides or on the fringe and were being persecuted at the time, all of a sudden propelled them to the forefront of government politics and theology by somehow saying this is now the right religion for our nation. And there are reasons Constantine did that, but there are some very inconsistent acts of Constantine according to Scripture that I really question whether he was a believer. What I believe is that Christians at that time had grown to such a mass that he needed them to solidify his political power at the time in Rome, which he did with the Christian's help. But what that did was introduce the belief that our faith can be combined with government in a way that we politically mandate our faith to others. And that is never what Christ intended. And not only was it not what he intended, it never works. When a government agent knocks on your door and tells you what you, most, you must believe, most, if not all of us, would not receive that well. But that's essentially what the church became after centuries of growing in influence. And then what we found also last week is that whenever someone would fight against the, the growing power, wealth, and influence of the church, they would respond harshly. They would either excommunicate you, which at that time meant you were excommunicated from all social life, period. Or if you were too great a threat, they would actually kill you. And we saw several examples of when the church disagreed with someone's actions and that they were put to death. Specifically, we looked at the Anabaptists because they believed you could not be baptized unless you made a conscious decision for yourself to follow Christ, that that is what Scripture taught. And yet the church taught, well, you need to be in the church from the point that you're a baby. And if you're in the church, then you're saved from hell. And that is not what Jesus said. And so they persecuted the Anabaptists. The church persecuted the Anabaptists and said, okay, if you want to get baptized as an adult, let us baptize you. And that meant that they would stuff them in a sack, put rocks in the sack, bind their hands and their feet, throw them in the river, and drown them. We also found one of the great reformers, William Tyndale, who, among others, including Martin Luther, had a very strong conviction. We're going to talk more about this next week. Had a strong conviction that you ought to be able to read Scripture in your own language. You shouldn't have to have somebody tell you what it means. It's like sitting down with an IRS agent telling you what the IRS code is, right? You're not really sure they're telling you the truth. And that's exactly what happened in the early church in, the, in, in this period of time. They would tell you all kinds of crazy things like purgatory exists, even though purgatory is nowhere in Scripture, a place where you would kind of be in a holding tank. And the ways that you could get out of the holding tank and get to heaven was someone could pray enough to the saints to allow you to go into heaven or you could pay the church, a certain amount of money, and that would guarantee they would go to heaven. Those, we call those indulgences. In addition, your sins, if you had committed sins and you wanted to be clean in the eyes of God, you didn't have to repent, you didn't have to accept the sacrifice of Christ, you could buy your way out of sin. And so today the church is 
the wealthiest organization on the planet. Again, not what Jesus intended. And at that time, they were just great abuses of authority and power. Today, what I want to talk with you about, and I want to share with you one reformer. His name is John Calvin. And what I believe is perhaps the greatest push within the Reformation was for the purity of the gospel. And from the very beginning, there has been a struggle for us to truly accept the gospel the way that Christ intended it, that we want to adjust it and make it mean something just a little bit different that puts a little more control in our hands or in the church's hands, but that is not what it means. I, I wanna, we're going to go through several scriptures today. I'm going to begin with Romans chapter 10, verse 13. If you want to follow along on version, you can do that. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along there. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will you call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When you begin to understand the shape that the world is in, what God has done to redeem us and to bring us back into his family, you begin to understand these words, how beautiful are the feet of those who are bringing the gospel, which we understand more critically how beautiful is the gospel. It's beautiful. It is the central cornerstone of our faith. It is the only thing that gives us the opportunity to be forgiven for our sins and to be restored in any way to relationship with God that was broken by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that we continue in brokenness to this day. How beautiful is the gospel because nothing in Scripture matters to us if the gospel is not real and it is not true. And if you are a follower of Jesus... My hope is, and what should be, is that the gospel is beautiful to you. Because for those that know Christ, it is life. And for those that don't know Christ, there is only death. The gospel is beautiful. The greatest evil of the unreformed church was the shift of the gospel from being Christ-centered to being church-centered. Now, there are a number of reasons that they wanted the gospel to be more church-centered. That's why they would install in a papal authority that said there is one person that will stand between you and God, and that is the Pope. That's something that continues today. Is still a continued teaching today, although it is not near as stringent as it once was. And there are some that would say they do not need the Pope to go to Christ or to God the Father. But at this time, the gospel moved from being centered on Christ and that our salvation was through Christ alone. And now the church has a role in this. And if the church has a role in this, just let's say we, Journey Church, has a role in your salvation, then I can exhibit great control over you We're concerned about your eternal destiny. If in some way your interaction with us, your tithing, your serving, Your attendance, the way you dress or talk or act, the number of people that you bring in, 
All of those things would be grounds for us to determine your eternal destiny. And if I have that power as the pastor of a faith community and I chose to exercise that power, I can either make your life wonderful or I can make your life terrible. Now, even in that example, it, does, it fails to truly exhibit what was happening at this time because not only did they have that power in faith communities, that power was dictated in some degree by the government and it was nationwide. Many of the reformers were cast out of their homes and their home nations because the church said, you disagree with our teaching. You're a problem for us. You must now leave the country. John Calvin was one of those people that we're going to talk about today. Whenever he began to believe that the church had perverted the gospel, they said, get out. And if he didn't get out, he would be dead. And so he did get out. The church changed the gospel to steal glory, power, and wealth for themselves. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know how they could do that. I mean, anybody can read the Bible and understand if the church is teaching something that's true or something that's not. And you would be correct if you were talking about right now, but you would not be correct if you're talking back then because they didn't have the Bible in their common language. So the church not only was in charge of their eternal destinies, the church was in charge of telling them what Scripture said. And as we looked at one particular, uh, one particular former last week, who was a Catholic priest that said, I never read Scripture for the first two years of my ministry for fear it would change me. And so they just accepted the traditions of the upper leadership within the church. And so I could tell you, oh, you didn't come to church today. That means that you are not going to make it into heaven, which you would argue with me and probably give me scripture to back it up. But if I told you that's what scripture said and you had no way to verify that, then you're stuck. Now they did this because people realize that there is great power and wealth to be made if you control someone's faith. This isn't something new. This is what happened in the Old Testament. This is what happened with the priests right at the time of Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Jesus was killed was because he said the priests were exercising authority outside of what Christ had given them, and they were not acting in the way they were supposed to, which is when Jesus walked into the temple, turned over the money changers' carts because the church was getting wealthy off of these money changers. And as we read last week, they sought to destroy Christ because of that action. He challenged their power. So this is not something new. This is something that happens. And if we're not careful, it can happen again. Anytime I see a politician talking about their faith over and over and over again, I start to question. Makes me wonder, why are you talking about your faith, a political appointment, is not a faith position. It never has been. Jesus himself said that our kingdoms are not the same, and so our governance is not the same. So we have to be so certain as to what these things look like in Scripture because that is how we find truth. Some of the areas, and, and this is probably a lot more than you wanted. If you hadn't had enough coffee this morning, you're probably zoning out on me, so stick with me. Because if we don't know what has happened in the past, we will allow it to happen again. Some of the things that they began to do to hold their power was they changed the doctrine or they changed the practice, not the doctrine, but the practice of communion. And when we do communion every quarter or so, we do it to remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. But in the Catholic Church at this time, there was the belief that a true priest 
would be able to pray over the elements, the bread and the wine is what they would use, and they would actually transform into the blood and body of Jesus. Now, if you were a true priest and God was truly at work in your life, it would truly transform. But if you weren't a true priest and God wasn't truly working in your life, it wouldn't transform. Of course, it didn't actually transform into flesh and blood, so the priest would have to say, oh, it's transformed. Isn't that convenient? And some of the reformers said, I struggled because I never believed that they changed into anything, and so it made me question my faith. And as they went to Scripture, their minds were opened. I've already mentioned purgatory and prayers for the saints. One of the great struggles and beliefs was the the belief that others were equal with Christ. The Pope was equal with Christ. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was equal with Christ. and the indulgences that made them wealthy. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about grace, talks about faith, and talks about salvation in this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not by any person other than the person of Jesus. So anytime we put somebody else in the equation, then we have messed up the gospel. And when we mess up the gospel, we change everything. So the purity of the gospel was the forefront of the reformer's mind. And if you look through all of the reforms that they would institute that would become known as Protestantism, Much of it had to do with defining what is the clear gospel. And I would say even today, while we have Scripture in innumerable numbers of languages, even though we have probably most of us multiple Bibles in our homes, even though we have access to Scripture online and in the bookstore or in the library, even though we have people teaching it, 24-7, you can stream it, you can come to church, you can go to multiple church services at different times, at different places of the week. Even though we have all of those things, there are still many today that have never truly understood the gospel in the way that Jesus meant for them to understand it, for what it truly is. One of the most powerful arguments for a reformation of the church at this time was something that I believe we still need for today and That was that the gospel must be understood in purity, in clarity. And one of those reformers was a man by the name of John Calvin. I want to share a little bit about his life. I want to share a little bit about what happened with him. If you're still not that familiar with the Reformation period of history, I really encourage you to do some research. It's not hard to go back and look at the facts. This is not something we're making up. This is not just a good illustration. You need to understand this is our history. And in our history, there is a reason that the rest of the world views Christianity often with such hatred. Whenever we, as a nation, have a history less, well, roughly half the period of time from between now and the Reformation, then we don't always take into account the history of the church for thousands of years. But when you look at the rest of the world that has been around for thousands of years, nations, countries that have been around for thousands of years, they remember these actions. They remember, and they're still wary of us. 
And so if we don't take the time to make sure that we get this and we live this out in the way Christ intended, it does not promise that people won't hate us. In fact, Jesus says, if you get the gospel, there's going to be people that hate you. They won't hate you because you're bad people. They will hate you because within them is a darkness that rejects the light. And so their hatred, it should be because they are saying, I refuse to bow my knee to Christ. It should not be because of the way the church has treated other people. And so as we go through this life of Calvin, what I hope that you will see, I think you will probably find some common points in your own life. As we look at John Calvin, who was born in 1509, he lived till 1564. He lived in France and became an incredible scholar, an author, a writer. And he was in a nation, France at the time, just like Rome, just like England. France was controlled by the Catholic Church. It was very much embedded in government there. John Calvin had a crisis within his own faith because as he began to read Scripture, he began to realize that many of these abuses of the church needed to be addressed and corrected and that the very gospel was at stake. The souls of people that believed they knew Christ were at stake because they were being fed a lie and they didn't know it. So as he began to read Scripture, he began to part from the church. And as he began to be more convinced, as he read through Scripture that something needed to be said, he wrote one of the most significant works of this Reformation period that would be titled The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Whenever the church caught wind of this, this writing of John's went all over the world. And the church got wind because he was influencing people to leave the church. The interesting thing about many of these reformers was that their intention was not to have people leave the church. Even Martin Luther, who tacked the 95 Theses on the church door, he he had no desire to leave the church. He still saw great hope and the the ability for the church to be redeemed and to come together as one body. He wanted to be a reformer. He believed there needed to be reform within the church, but he still, as we believe today, believed in unity of the church and did not want to create division. Incredibly, some of the charges, or many of the charges that were brought against these reformers, one was heresy. You're teaching something that the church doesn't agree with, which no one else knew which, what to believe because they didn't have the Bible to read. And the second was schism. You're trying to split the church. John Calvin was accused of both of these things, and he could have forfeited his life, but he ran. And when he ran, he ran to Switzerland, and he stopped overnight in the town of Geneva. For those of you that are familiar with the story of John Calvin, you're familiar with his ministry in Geneva because that's where he spent most of his life. But in the moment that he fled France and went to Geneva, he had only intended to stay a night. He was going to spend the night, and he was headed somewhere else. He was a great scholar. He loved to think. He loved to write, and he was convinced that there needed to be reform. So his goal was, I will go. I will find this nice little secluded writing spot. You know, Brian, you can probably get into this. I'm going to have a little fire over here. I'm going to have all my paper here that I can write on. I'll have my quill. I'll get up in the morning. I'll write what I am 
inspired to write. I'll send it off. It will go out to the four corners of the world. Change will happen, and I will have another cup of coffee on the way. But that night, when he pulled into Geneva, his writings, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, had become so popular that another reformer in the area, his name was William Farrell, heard that he was there and asked him, would you stay? He understood that there needed to be some kind of intellectual understanding of the gospel and of Scripture, and somebody needed to write these things. But what people needed was someone to lead them, to bring them together in a community, for them to to have a leader, a pastor to help them. And William Farrell believed that John Calvin could be that man. Now, this is a fun story. Because at the moment, Calvin said, oh, no, that's not what my plan is. You don't understand. I've got this little writing nook that I'm headed to. It's got a little nice fireplace in the corner. It's got a nice little espresso maker that I can have whenever I want. I'm going to write this stuff, and don't worry. I will put you on my mailing list, and I will send you my documents. But, you know, it's messy to get in here and to do church. It's messy to be a pastor. It's messy to try to organize people to live out their faith. I just really want to let people know what they should believe and open up and expound the Scriptures. And, you know, I really like coffee, so I really want to just have coffee and watch the sun come up and then go back down, and I, 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 that's how I'm going to spend my ministry. And William Farrell, who was a fiery guy, said, oh, let me tell you something. God has told me that you're supposed to stay. If you will not stay, then I, I will ask God to curse you so that in all of your studies, you will never truly see him. And you and I, and our love for espresso, may say, whatever, I'm out of here. John Calvin said, I felt as if God from heaven had laid his mighty hand upon me to stop me in my course. And I was so terror stricken that I did not continue my journey. He took this seriously. One of the things I believe, and if you really want to get into a deeper study, you'll find that these, these reformers, while we at a time like this hold them up in these saintly roles, will find that they had lots of faults and failings of their own. But they took this stuff seriously. And I think that's one of the things that I struggle with most in our current... Whoa! In our current... All right. Our current context, which is in the dark, which is not good. That's not a good message for the message on the gospel. (laughs) And then there was light, and the gospel showed out onto all of the people. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the light on Sunday morning. <laughs> One of the things that I struggle with in, in our time today is that John Calvin responded because he had such a belief that this was real and this was true. That he feared for his very life to go against the will of God. And yet what we see today are half commitments to a gospel that says, just believe a few easy things and you're good. Now go live your life however you want. That was never the way they understood the gospel or understood following Christ. For John Calvin, it stopped in his tracks and his ministry, for the most part, would be in Geneva from that point forward. Now there was going to be a hiccup for him, and I want to... 
share a little bit about that hiccup. But before I do, some of the things that, that, that Calvin was most known for, two things that he was most known for was his doctrine of election. Some of you, have you ever heard of the doctrine of election? How many of you come from a Presbyterian background or a Calvinist background, Calvinist Reformed Baptist or something like that? And in that background, the doctrine of election is one of five points of Calvinism that may, if you're a real student of, of uh, religion, that you are familiar with. It goes by the, the uh, acronym, thank you, of TULIP. We'll get it up in a minute. Tulip stood for the five points of Calvinism. The first one was total depravity. It was the belief that we all would, I hope, agree to that we are all sinful. Our sin has condemned us to a life without Christ, a life without knowing God, and a life without being able to be with him in heaven. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short. All of our sin is more than we can ever atone for on our own, which is why Jesus had to come and give his life for us. Total depravity is the basis of most all evangelical beliefs of faith. If you don't believe in total depravity, the, the only alternative is to believe you can live a life that is perfect without sin. Total depravity says we cannot do it. We all believe that. We are all at least three-point Calvinists in the room. But the second point was unconditional election. Unconditional election is probably the hallmark of Calvinism, the hallmark of Reformed theology, the hallmark of many Protestant, or excuse me, many Presbyterian traditions and Reformed Baptist traditions, and that is that God from before the beginning of time had already chosen all that would ever happen in all of history, and those that would know him, he chose before the foundations of the earth were laid. So in other words, if you're a Christian, God chose that before he ever created the earth. And for those that will not be a Christian, God chose for them not to be a Christian. It's the idea that God chooses who are going to be his chosen people. And it is founded in many different places in Scripture, but there are lots of problems with that theology. I myself am not a proponent of this doctrine. Now, he may be absolutely right when we start getting into understanding that God is omniscient, he knows everything. Certainly God knows all who will come in faith to him. And we have to ask ourselves, well, if God knows that all who will come in faith to him, that maybe he directed them to come in faith to him. Because as we study with the Holy Spirit, the only way to come to faith in him is through the what? Holy Spirit, a couple of you were listening. The Holy Spirit. But the idea of unconditional election is you don't do anything to get elected. God just arbitrarily chooses who he wants to choose. That was the second point of Calvinism. The third is limited atonement. The fourth is irresistible grace. You cannot choose not to do this. And the fifth was perseverance of the saints. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Now, of all of these points, I don't want us to bog down. They are John Calvin's hallmark doctrine and theology. Primarily, the doctrine of election is probably what sets him apart from the others. But regardless, he had a great understanding of the gospel and the need for us to accept it as it is in purity and clarity. In 1539, something happened in his time in Geneva. He had been there for about three years, building the church, writing, and his fame was growing. 
And Switzerland, with the influence of Rome, decided that it was time for Calvin to go. And so they expelled him from the nation, and he ran. In an attempt to bring that area, which was a a center of thought and knowledge, of of teaching universities, of philosophy, it was a center of uh, just a, a knowledge that was spreading out from there. In order to bring that back into the fold of the church, they brought in a cardinal to kind of undo what Calvin had done. His name was Cardinal Sadaledo. John Calvin said this of him, Your zeal for heavenly life is a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not, even by one expression, arouse him to sanctify the name of God. You should set before man as the prime motive of his existence zeal to illustrate the glory of God. In other words, you're leading people to not give glory to God, but to give glory to the church. And the only one who's deserving of that glory is God. He goes on and writes a response to the cardinal in his attempts to reclaim Geneva. Have we got slides back up yet? No, we're not coming back up? Okay. Behind us? Okay. All right. Well, good. That's all I care about. So I want to take you through this, and I don't want you to get bogged down. This is John Calvin's full response to Cardinal Sadaletto that was trying to undo all of the things that the Reformers were doing at the time. I want you to listen. I'll, I'll stop. It's kind of a long document, but I want you to hear what he has to say because this is a defense of the gospel. He says, They charged me with two of the worst of crimes, heresy and schism. And the heresy was that I dared to protest against dogmas which they received. But what could I have done? I heard from thy mouth that there was no other light or truth which could direct our souls into the way of life than that which was kindled by thy word. Talking about Scripture, the Bible. I heard that whatever human minds of themselves conceive, in other words, what you came up with on your own, Concerning thy majesty, the worship of thy deity, and the majesties of thy religion was vanity. I heard that they're introducing into the church, instead of thy word, doctrines sprung from the human brain with sacrilegious presumption. In other words, you're making stuff up that is not true and saying these are the doctrines of God, misleading people. And because he said that, he was accused of heresy and schism, trying to fracture and split the church, which, again, was not their desire because that's how they maintained control, power, and wealth. But when I turned my eyes towards men, I saw very different principles prevailing. Those who regarded as the leaders of faith neither understood thy word nor greatly cared for it. They only drove unhappy people to and fro with strange doctrines and deluded them with I know not what follies. Among the people themselves, the highest veneration paid to thy word was to revere it at a distance as a thing inaccessible and abstain from all investigation of it. In other words, you want us to believe everything you say and you don't want us to investigate it all for ourselves to understand what is truly in the Word of God. I I think one of the most damning things that he says is, those who were regarded as the leaders of faith neither understood it nor greatly cared for it. 
He goes on to say, owing to this supine state of the pastors and this stupidity of the people, every place was filled with pernicious errors, falsehoods, and superstition. They indeed called thee the only but it was while transferring to others the glory which thou hast claimed for thy majesty. And he was talking about the Pope and Mary primarily. The majesty that is only due God and his son Jesus Christ You're giving it to the Pope and to Mary, these people that did not hold to that majesty nor deity of the living God. But you say we should worship them as equals. They figured and had for themselves as many gods as they had saints, whom they chose to worship. Thy Christ was indeed worshipped as God and retained the name of Savior, but where he ought to have been honored, he was left almost without honor. For spoiled of his own virtue, he passed unnoticed among the crowd of saints, like one of the meanest of them. There was none who duly considered that one sacrifice which he offered on the cross, and by which he reconciled us to thyself, none who ever dreamed of thinking of his eternal priesthood and the intercession depending upon it, none who trusted in his righteousness only, that confident hope of salvation which is both enjoyed by the word and founded upon it had almost vanished. In other words, you are preaching a gospel that leads people to be stuck. To not experience light, but to stay in darkness. And to not experience life, but to stay stay dead. And yet you hold it up. This is the gospel of Christ, of who Jesus was crucified. So that we could be set free from the struggles and pain of this world. Not that we would never experience those, but that we would transcend them because of his presence within us. And what they were doing was they were changing that gospel and taking away the deity and the majesty of Christ, that he would be worshipped alone. And instead saying, you know, some of our priests are pretty, pretty far up there with Jesus. You should worship us too, which is what you want a church to believe when you want to control them. As to the charge of forsaking the church, which they, they were wont to bring against me. There is nothing of which my conscience accuses me, unless indeed he is to be considered a deserter, who seeing the soldiers routed and scattered and abandoning the ranks, raises the leader a standard and recalls them to their posts. In other words, you're pulling people away from the church. And Calvin said, how can you see that we're doing that unless you see us pulling away those from your corruption and making a stand for what is true and right? For thus, O Lord, were all thy servants dispersed so that they could not by any possibility hear the command, but had almost forgotten their leader, Christ, and their service and their military oath in order to bring them together when thus scattered I raise not a foreign standard, in other words, something completely foreign to what you say you teach. I raise not a foreign standard, but that noble banner of thine which we must follow if we would be classed among thy God's people. That I was assailed by those who, when they ought to have kept others in their ranks, had led them astray. And when I determined not to desist, opposed me with violence, which is how the church silenced people. It didn't work in the Old Testament. It didn't work with Jesus. It didn't work with the apostles. It didn't work with the reformers. I don't know why we think killing people helps, which is a good thing to remember when we start talking about killing every terrorist. And once you kill somebody, 
you submit their ideals. Because how many ideals are we willing to die for? And if you're a person that doesn't know what you're living for, and you find somebody else was willing to die for something, and you're in search of, that must be important. Killing people does not end their message. It only amplifies it. With whom the blame rests, it is for thee, O Lord, to decide, and which was a dig because they said the Pope and the priests were to decide that. Always, both by word and deed, have I protested how eager I was for unity. In other words, I don't want to break up the church, but this is not the church. Mine, however, was a unity of the church which should begin with thee, God, and end in thee, God. For as oft as thou dost recommend us to peace, God recommending us to peace and concord or unity, thou at the same time didst show that thou wert the only bond for preserving it. In other words, Christ is the only one that can bring unity. And you're denying his deity. You're denying his majesty. You're denying that he is the only one that can do this. Nor did I think that I dissented from thy church because I was at war with those leaders, for thou hast forewarned me, both by the Son and by the apostles, that what place would be occupied by persons to whom I ought by no means to consent. Christ had predicted not of strangers, but of men who should give themselves out for pastors, that they would be ravenous wolves and false prophets, and had at the same time cautioned me to beware of them. Where Christ ordered me to beware, was I to lend my aid? In other words, I see the things that Jesus warned us about, false teachers. Am I just supposed to agree with you because you say you're the church? And be complicit in your false teaching and leading people astray? Where Christ ordered me to beware, I was to lend my aid, and the apostles declared that there would be no enemies of thy church more, excuse me, more pestilential than those from within who should conceal themselves under the title of pastors. We could stop right here for a while because this is still happening today. Whenever we begin to look at any kind of doctrine that intermingles worldly values with the gospel values, then we have a false teacher. And they're rampant. They're rampant. One of the reasons that the church is fractured is because of this. Who I would go back to something he said earlier. Those who don't study thy word and quite honestly don't even care about it. That is, gosh. That should keep you awake at night if you are tasked with teaching. Why should I have hesitated to separate myself from persons whom they forewarned me to hold as enemies? I had before my eyes the examples of thy prophets who I saw had a similar contest with the priests and false prophets of their day. In other words, this isn't new. It wasn't new then. It's not new now. Though these were undoubtedly the rulers of the church among the Israelitish people. But thy prophets were, are not regarded as schismatics because... When they wished to revive religion, which had fallen into decay, they desisted not, although opposed with the utmost violence. They wanted to stop the decay. They, <clears throat> they still remained in the unity of the church, though they were doomed by perdition by wicked priests and deemed unworthy of a place among men, not to say saints. They were silenced. 
Now, what do we do with this? Let's pray and go home. Feel good. What do we do with this? I want to remind you what Scripture says. The reason I read that to you is because this is a condemnation of the church at the time. And let's be honest, if we go back and read this with a little more current vernacular, a little more timely, relevant examples is also a warning for us today. But Calvin's goal was not to lead a person to shame. Calvin's goal was not to tell people that he's better than them. Was not to say, you know what, you're a bad Christian and I'm a good Christian. That was not his goal. We can easily read that in this, but that is not his purpose. What is his purpose? What what is he trying to do? Philippians 3 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Philippians 3 It's a wonderful demonstration of the gospel. What I find interesting about this very first verse, you know, it's really no problem for me to say this again because it's good for you to hear it again. Now, why in the world would Paul say that? You know, we don't like to be told the same thing more than once. We want to tell it once and, okay, I got it. Stop saying it. But since the beginning of the church, followers have struggled with following. Since the beginning, you and I are not Unique in this. It's not like the church has fallen to new lows with us. From the very beginning, followers have struggled with following. And so Paul's saying, let me remind you of the things that we hold most dear because sometimes it's hard to follow. So let me just remind you of what that is. And this is what he reminds them. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. That's not very nice, by the way, is it? We have this belief that Christians are supposed to be very meek-mannered. I don't hurt your feelings. Jesus would never hurt your feelings. Man, that's, that's not the Jesus I read. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to a law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to unrighteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. If the church understood just that, there would have never been a need for the Reformation. Everything else, power, control, wealth, status, influence, All of that is meaningless in face of the cross. I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Because what he's saying is I had power. I had influence. I had control. I had wealth. I had status. It was all meaningless once I understood the gospel. See, Paul valued his standing as a religious purist until he met Jesus. But that changed everything. Let me ask you this. I ask myself this. What do you most value? What do you most value? That is our God. Whatever you most value is our God. It does not mean you don't value anything other than God. But what do you most value? 
Luke 14 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Which is very harsh, by the way. I really like my mom and dad and my sister. I don't have a brother. But I really like him. I don't want to hate him. I don't think Jesus hated his brother. But our families even cannot take that, that place of Christ in our lives. We must value him more. Jesus will be our greatest treasure when we see him for who he truly is. So the way that we sometimes portray this is, is Jesus your greatest treasure? Well, he should be. Okay. He's my greatest treasure, I guess. You know, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Make Jesus your greatest treasure right now, right now. You can't leave until you do that. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. I, I'll, put a, I'll put a fish on the back of my car. I did it. He is my greatest treasure. Some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, well, I got a tattoo of, G, of the fish. So, you know, you'll trade that car in. But I'm, trading, I'm not trading this body until I get my new body from heaven. So, you know. Jesus will be our greatest treasure when we see him for who he truly is. It's not about having to make him the most valuable thing. Once we see him for who he is, he will be. That's why the gospel cannot be dictated. This is what you must do. It has to be received. And either we'll receive it or we won't. If we receive it, he becomes our greatest treasure. And if we don't receive it, we may receive something. We may go to church. We may say we're a Christian. We may, you know, carry a Bible with us. We may have version on the first home screen of our phone. You know, I don't have to swipe to the third page like you. I, it's on my first screen. I love Jesus. You know? It's not about having to make him or prove that he's most valuable. But when we see him for who he is, that's what he becomes. And, and that's what Calvin was so worried about. You are, you are changing this. He's no longer most valuable treasure. Now it's just your system of religion which is what how Calvin describes, you're taking people who are struggling and you're keeping them in the struggle. They're never able to find redemption or transcendence from this. And instead, they're just stuck here, hating their life. But as long as they follow along, you say they're good. But they're not good. They know they're not good. And if you would just let them have your, God's word in their hands to read it, it would release them. And the church said, no, that's what we looked at last week. That's why Tyndale was martyred. He was killed because he took the Bible and put it in every man's language so they could read it for themselves. Why? The church has so corrupted the gospel that for anyone to be able to read it and to recognize the corruption, he should be put to death. We've got to stop this right now. And it didn't work. Verse 8 in Philippians 3 says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, when you begin to see that Jesus is your greatest treasure, you read these verses differently, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. So let's do this. All that would like to receive Jesus Christ today and come down and pray and and then suffer for it, come on down. And you'll never hear a presentation of the gospel like that. But the apostles and those who know Christ say, if I am like Christ, even in his suffering, what an honor that is. Even as I say those words, I say them feeling like a hypocrite without ever truly expecting that will be required of me. I pray that if that moment comes, that I will act accordingly. The gospel tells us that we are already dead without Christ. When we believe and have faith in Christ, Jesus becomes our ultimate treasure and we are saved. Glory, hallelujah, amen. But what happens if we're not perfect Christians? Because don't you read this stuff and go, well, gosh, I just, I mean, I think you're probably right. I mean, you've studied this more than I have, so you're probably right. But I know I'm not that good of a Christian. So what if we're not perfect Christians? He addresses that, verse 12. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so here's what I think we can take from that. One, imperfect Christians keep the goal in mind. We don't hold ourselves to a level of Jesus' behavior, and that's the only way to honor God. I'm going to be perfect or I'm going to be terrible. There's no in-between. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, keep your eyes on the goal. I want to keep moving forward. I want to keep striving. I want to keep growing. I want to keep getting to where he wants me to be. I'm not there yet, but I'm keeping it in mind. Now, in order for me to keep the goal in mind, i got lots of other goals in mind, you know? i got lots of other things I want to accomplish with my life. But we have to keep the primary goal there. Every other goal that we may ever have for our lives has to fall under first, I've got to become what Christ intended for me to become. If any of my other goals get in the way of that, then those goals must disappear. That, I must keep the goal in mind. Imperfect Christians, number two, also keep striving forward, which means when you mess up, don't stop. Jesus anticipated that. And that's why his blood covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and go, okay, well, I'm just imperfect. Let's go sin a while, and then I'll do better. And, that's, and that was not new. That's not something we came up with. Literally, Paul has to teach on this and says, you know what? Don't, don't walk that way. Don't live that way. It's, we don't just keep sinning so we can say, oh, look how much grace God has. I mean, I'm sinning a whole lot, and he's still forgiving me. No, no, no. Stop. Stop get better. Imperfect Christians keep striving forward. They don't stop. And imperfect Christians keep growing. I'm not where I was 10 years ago in my faith. If I'm where I am right now in another 10 years, there's a problem. We keep growing. We keep getting there. 
Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For we, for, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even more, excuse me, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, there are some people who are still going to be so wrapped up in the things of this world that they're never going to get this. But we are striving for something better. What do we take from this? What I'm going to leave you with today. I want to leave you with this. We must have a passion for the excellency of Christ. We must have a passion for the purity and clarity of the gospel. The gospel is what we are about. Now let me just say, in, in, in a time of great cultural Christianity where, where you can literally never bow your knee to Christ and yet you can attend church every week and you can be leaders in the church and you can lead small groups and you can do all kinds of things but, and still never bend a knee to Christ, let me just tell you something. It, we have got to understand pureness of the gospel and that it changes us as a church it is the the communication of the gospel is our primary role that's a primary thing we got to do and what what often happens in church today is whoever provides the most engaging entertaining experience or whoever provides the most enjoyable social experience is the church that grows the fastest and if the gospel is not the core if we don't get this right none of the other stuff matters Can I tell you, I have never been burned out from preaching the gospel, but I have been burned out from trying to meet people's expectations for programs and social needs. Now, be honest. Those of you who have burned out in church church leadership and in church volunteering, have you ever been burned out through the gospel? Probably not. Maybe you have. Maybe you just told so many people about Jesus, you just had to take a rest. I don't know. They throw, praise God, keep going. But most of us burn out trying to maintain other structures outside of the transference of the gospel to people that need to hear it. Now, does that mean that, you know what, you should not want to spend time with each other? No. Fellowship among believers is crucial as we walk through this life. However, if that takes priority over the transference of the gospel to those who need to hear it, then we are out of balance. We've got to get this right. We have to have a passion for the excellency of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9, one of my favorite um, verses in Scripture. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, when when you see that you were in darkness and he pulled you out into the light, he becomes your treasure. Me standing up here saying, Jesus needs to be your treasure. Right now, you want to show me that Jesus is your treasure? Write a big fat check. You know, that that happens. That does happen. That is never the way it works. You do not prove to me that Jesus is your treasure. He is either your treasure or he's not. If he is not, and let me be very blunt here, there are days Jesus is not my treasure. I got other treasures. I got a new car out there, and I'm loving it. That's my treasure right now. I'll I'll read Scripture sitting in it. But there are sometimes other treasures. 
You know, when Stranger Things Season 2 comes out, it's out. 361,000 people watched all nine episodes in a row, according to Netflix statistics. There's one right there. 300, let that sink in. 361,000 people, as soon as it hit, watched all nine episodes at one time. There's free counseling after the service, Tracy. No. (laughs) It was good. Man, we're season three. Did you see how it ended? There's got to be a season three. All right. Anyways. Let me digress. Let me digress. It's not about proving that he's our treasure. You know, it's like that like that person you dated and they say, oh, no, I really do like you. You know, if that phrase is ever spoken in the context of a relationship, it's over. It's over. <laughs> it's over. I really, I really do. No, I, you have some really admirable qualities. Then just walk away. Put your head down and walk away. We don't have to prove that he's our treasure. No, Jesus, you really are my treasure. Really, 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 really. I mean it. He either is or he isn't. And if he isn't, here's good news. We can ask him to help us make him into the center of our attention. And he will do it. Because the very fact that we are asking is an act of God within our lives. Because we can't do that on our own. I'm going to read you one last quote and then I'm done. Because I know, I know you're wore out from listening to all this. And you're all going to go home and read everything you can find on John Calvin this afternoon. But I want to read this last quote from him. I thought it was just... Just so meaningful. External knowledge of Christ is found to be only a false and dangerous make believe. However, eloquently and freely, lip servants may talk about the gospel. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only, but it is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates to the inner recesses of the heart. Let nominal Christians, Christians in name only, cease from insulting God by boasting themselves to be what they are not. And let them show themselves disciples not unworthy of Christ, their master. We must assign first place to the knowledge of our religion, for that is the beginning of salvation. But our religion will be unprofitable if it does not change our heart, pervade our manners, and transform us into new creatures. The gospel is not the way that we get into the club. It is how we are born. So as you go through your week, if you are like me, there are days that this sermon gets me going. I'm so excited right now, I could go do anything. And there are days I read and I'm like, oh, just shut up, John Calvin. You know, let's be honest. What I pray, though, when I know as I read Scripture, is that he is 100% right. And that is preferable to a life giving him lip service. Let him pervade us. Let him pervade our manners, our ways of living. Let him pervade not just our beliefs, but our whole very being so that we become something new. And so as we look back on the Reformation, let me just tell you, John Calvin made some mistakes. Man, he is so right on so much of this, but he is such a great example, just as Paul was, of what it means to be a fallible person that knows Jesus. 
there was another teacher in Geneva. I'll just tell you this, just so we don't put him into the level of, you know, deity himself. There was another teacher in Geneva that was accused of heresy. The church didn't like him either. And so the town council of which John Calvin was very influential decided he needed to die. And John Calvin did not stop it. A man who had run for his own life allowed another man's life, though even he said was heretical, allowed his life to be taken, burned at the stake. He had been accused by the church. The church found him in Geneva, and the council decided to end his life and fulfill his punishment, which was to be burned at the stake. We must not look at these guys that they are in any way on level with Jesus. But one of the beautiful things and one of the things I hope for is that even in our failings, God will show us what is true. And we can walk in what is right. My prayer for us today is not that we will become historians that are just in love with the story, but we will be a people who see the beauty of the gospel that we protect the purity and the clarity of the gospel, that we live it out in our days. And just like what Paul said, we will continue to strain forward, to strive towards the goal that we will not be disqualified to experience what we've been preaching and teaching and talking about. Let us experience the gospel as it is. Let us transform us. and Let us go out and help that to transform others. Would you pray with me? Father, God, I thank you for the examples of John Calvin, a flawed man who revealed to us a reminder of the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I thank you that we can be forgiven even when we, we have sin within our lives. I, I thank you that you call us to believe, you call us to repent, you call us to bend our knee and to make you our Lord. I pray that, that we would allow no one or nothing else to hold the level of ultimate treasure in our lives. You are the ultimate treasure. You have changed us. You have redeemed us. You brought us out of the darkness. And even though we may walk in difficulty and heartbreak and suffering in this life, we are walking in the light through it. And one day when this is all over, we will be with you in heaven forever. Let us keep that in focus on all other things in our lives. Father, I pray that we would not be those that simply give lip service to your word, but Father, we would take it in and be transformed by it. Pray for those in this room that they are so desperate for that. And God, I just I find so often that the more that I want you to be the center of, of your life, of my life, the more things that I see that I have placed there instead, I pray that you would not keep us in a place of shame and guilt when we recognize that we have failed at this. But God, you would inspire us and cause us to be so in love with you that we keep you in that spot. Father, I pray that as we go out from this place, the people that we come in contact with will see the gospel in us. They will be set free just as we have been set free. Father, I pray that as we cast off the chains of this world, that we will not take them back on. But instead, we will live in freedom knowing that we are your children and we will walk with you forever. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that we have the opportunity to read your word with our own eyes. We thank you that the only high priest we need is Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.